You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole for all of those franchises that we love outside of Star Trek. And we are so excited to be here with episode 449. And I'm just one of your hosts, Matthew Rushing. I'm so excited to have back with me inside the 602 Club, none other than Christy Morris. Christy, how are you doing? Oh, I'm totally ready to kick some butt. Excellent. Excellent. So you've got your uh, karate moves down. You're ready. Yeah. My Uh, roundhouse kick. Sweet. Sweet. I'm so excited. And the man who taught you that roundhouse kick, none other than John Mills. No, I thought I was a cop that went bad and was funneling stuff onto the streets. That seems more my style. Let's be honest. Mm. I'm more that that vibe than like revered teacher or anything like that. I'm like (laughs) evil overlord construction site vibes i mean that that's my takeaway you mean mm. you're not the guy mm. that's wheeling and dealing with the bleach tips no 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 i'm not wheeling and dealing i'm i'm the one <laughs> running it telling people listen you go along with this deal or they're not gonna be able to identify you by your dental records so yeah i know he didn't well, say it like know. that but it's good uh, line. yeah unfortunately too you know john doesn't have any tips to frost so uh why you gotta do that why I gotta say so. that? This is theater of the mind. They don't know that. They can't see me. It's not it's well. Cool. As everybody can probably tell, we are going to be hitting the Lethal Weapon series as we move to part three uh, this week. And before we dive into that, thanks for listening. We just so appreciate you doing that. Of course, you can find us wherever podcasts can be had, and you can subscribe wherever you're listening, so you'll get our episodes as soon as they come out. You can also find us on social media at the 602 Club on what used to be called Twitter and Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. You can also find us online with the entire network at trek.fm. Plus, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. There is a listeners-only discussion group that you can join there called the Babel Conference. Just type that into the search field there. You'll be able to find us and join and talk to listeners from all over the world. And last but not least, you can support us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash Trek FM and make sure that all of this quality entertainment keeps coming to you each and every week. So before we get into anything, um, I, I just kind of wanted to know from both of you, this is the third movie. And so, John, was this a movie that you saw in the theater at all? Or was this a movie that of you were... Okay, okay. I thought of it was. Of course. At this, point. this was a big summer movie of 1992. There was no way I yeah. wasn't going to Wheaton Plaza and seeing this with my friends, which I did. And um, yeah, it was probably Wheaton Plaza 11, because the one inside the mall was Wheaton Plaza 4. That was the rinky dink little theater. Eh, it wasn't great presentation. We thought Wheaton Plaza 11 was better presentation. But as I look back on it, it wasn't. Um, but yeah, saw this with all my friends back in uh, back in May of 1992. We were all we were all a buzz to see the new Lethal Weapon movie. Of course, we we were buzz to see just about everything back then. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a simpler time. Yes, <laughs> Christy. Uh, obviously, I know for you, this probably would not have been a, a movie you would have seen in the theater. Do you remember coming across Part Three for the first time? I don't. Honestly, the first one was the most memorable for me as far as seeing it um, for the first time. But I know this one I saw many a time growing up at home uh, later when it came out on home video. But yeah, in the theater, no, because I was five. Sorry. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you in that sense. I, of course, did not see this in the theater either. Uh, And part of that is because you know, came out in, in 92. And this was not the type of film my parents would have taken me to at that point. Um, I think my first time coming across this was actually watching 
all of them to get ready for the fourth one as it is either it was coming out or, you know, maybe had just been released at that point when I saw it, I, th- I think on home video, I-, I didn't see the fourth one in the theater that I remember. Uh, but so this was for me just part of a progression of, of watching through all of these films. Um, and since most of them had come out at a point where, you know, my, my parents again, were not going to take me uh, to these movies. And so, Especially, I think, you know, that that first one would not have been a film that my parents would have showed me back in the day. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so but um, I, I'm, I'm interested then for for all of us, because uh, rewatching this, I totally forgot that this movie starts off with an explosive opening um, and using this building that was going to be destroyed in Orlando uh, and using that real explosion here for the opening of this movie. And I kind of wanted to, as we come back to this, the series and then, you know, this third film, how do you feel like this sets the tone then for what's to come in this third movie? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't really uh, tie into the plot per se, but... um at the very least, like it, it reminds you of what these characters are like and what they're about. So in that sense that, yeah, it's, it's an action blockbuster spectacle. So it sort of makes sense to do something like this, which is a throwaway little adventure to get people into the thing of like, this is what these guys are like and craziness ensues. I mean, you know, is it the best use of screen time? Not really, but it, you know, there have been worse. I, you know, it, it's cute. It's at least they saved the cat. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, we can get into the animal rights part of this later, but <laughs> um, I think same kind of thing as John was saying. It's typical for what you expect if you've seen one and two of reintroducing you again to what Riggs and Murtaugh are like in their relationship. Um, but as far as being useful to the overall story it's really not um and may even be a little bit more extreme i guess way of getting the attention right out the gate but i mean it works and i mean i do want to say props to the whole team making the movie on making something that was going to happen anyway work for them yeah i and filming an explosion it, this is one of many points where i'm sure i i I praise Jan Debont because I think he's he was a great action cinematographer. You can definitely tell. Like, if you look at this, you're like, oh, definitely photographed by the same guy that photographed Die Hard. Like, it is absolutely hmm. clear as day. And um, they got great coverage for that explosion. They definitely milked that for every, every uh, inch of celluloid that was running. You could tell that was like a 300 camera setup. And that editor probably never wanted to watch another explosion in his life where he was like, oh my gosh, how many times we're going to cut as many times as possible to use as much footage as we can. They did have a lot of angles. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they did. It's, it's interesting because I was thinking about is both of you were talking and then I was just thinking about the film, uh, you know, after I got a chance to rewatch it and, you know, this very much reminds me of, those later Roger Moore Bond movies where the opening definitely has nothing to do at all with the plot whatsoever. And it's really just like you said, Christy is attention grabbing. Hopefully that's what they're looking for is to just kind of get your blood pumping. And so I think that's part of it here. Uh, And the, the, but the other thing that this actually, I think it does set the tone in the sense that this film you know, is is one that it's going to have a lot of humor in it, maybe even more so than the first two. And that by doing this opening with these two guys, I think it just sets the tone that we're the film is really going to be about them and their relationship. Uh, you know, what the things they're going through. You know, those are important, but we're going to what they're going through it, it, personally is is almost going to be as important as just any plot point elements. So it, it's interesting to me that I felt like 
it did set the stage for the fact that, yeah, this is we're really going to care more about character in this movie than we are going to care a lot about the plot. Yeah, I, I, I would even take that a step further and say it's not even concerned really with character development so much like it it it's very episodic like this feels like and i don't mean this in a a pejorative sort of way especially because the way things have changed but it feels more like a like a tv series at this point Riggs and murtaugh are only going to advance but so much because if they ever take them out of this sort of zany buddy space that the whole thing falls apart and I think they're self-aware enough. I think the comedy is a bit of a compensation for the fact that regardless of what I thought, I, my general sentiment that I picked up from people is that people weren't as nuts about Lethal Weapon 2 as they were about the first Lethal Weapon. So I think they just said, you know what, let's just come back and have a good old time. And everybody loves the chemistry of these people and let's just, you know – have some fun. I don't think that there's any real weight to this outside of the fact that, you know, there's sort of like an obligatory, you can tell definitely what was on people's minds politically at the time with the whole getting the guns off the streets and the cop killer bullets and stuff like that. It's very much political talking points. Gang violence had taken over LA. I mean, this movie comes out just as people were becoming very, very, well, we were kind of getting close to the other side of it, but we had spent years obsessed with the idea that gang violence was going to absolutely destroy all of LA. And by the time it was the late nineties, it was going to be a barren hellscape of, of nothing but terrible violence. And well, I mean, I guess maybe it is, I don't live there, but <laughs> you know, it's it, so everybody's it, going to want to escape from LA. Yeah. yeah. Don't ever mention that movie title again, please. <laughs> but no, I think you're right, John, in the sense that, you know, one of the big parts, of course, and, and you you mentioned it, that this movie does clearly lean into the changing times where, you know, in the early 90s, we are very aware of uh, the problem of the war on the streets, game violence, the escalation that's happening with armor-piercing rounds making their way there, which is, you know, terrifying. Um and, you know, it, it's interesting because in some ways this has a very light version of that idea of the escalation that we'd see uh, play out in something like, you know, The Dark Knight or something where it's a really serious take. You know, um, this touches on all that. Um, but, uh, you know, on, on the other side, though, I think that it's interesting to watch this movie touch on and deal with the radicalization that can happen with gang members who – get sucked into this life of guns and crime from families that we see, they don't look like they're terrible families, you know? Um, and so I, I think that's the, an, another interesting thing. And, and the movie of course, doesn't really want to tackle that head on. They don't really want to talk about it. It's, it's more just there, um, you know, the, the family of, of the young boy that Murtaugh has to shoot because he's shooting at him uh, and, and kills in the line of duty, you know, the father's like, you find the guy who put the gun in my son's hand. And it's like, mm, well, you know, your son also made those choices too. So we're not, we're not really going to have any of those discussions. But it is interesting to see them touch on something that, like you said, really is a big deal at this point. I mean, yeah. Uh, the gang violence in L.A. specifically was I, – I remember, you know, seeing it on the news. So, Yeah, I think it, to me that's the point of this movie that they do the best is talking about a serious issue while balancing it with some ways to have comedic relief as well in the same movie. You know, they, they ride that line, I think, well – um, and also that sometimes when you're going through that kind of stuff, you have to find the occasional good thing that you can still have joy in or laugh about to get through it. Um, and I think the, that was the most powerful, too, because you get to see Murtaugh finally really break down about it and say, 
I knew that kid, though. It's not like, oh, it was just him or me. I knew him. He was my son's friend. I also have this guilt because I took a life and it was someone that I knew um, and that he was just a kid and that, you know, obviously he made some choices, but there's a part of it that's also just his innocence and naivety of getting into the situation that's not necessarily his fault. Um, So it's a, a really terrible place for him to be in and then seeing him and Riggs go through it together I thought was the most powerful part of the movie. I, I don't discount that at all. I think that the movie could have done a little bit better of how, like it seemed to be lacking sort of a scene that, that I would have expected say from you flash forward many years later and you have a show like the shield, which mm-hmm. is saying the same sort of thing that it's not just that these criminals on the streets are just randomly popping up with all of this stuff. They're being enabled by somebody who has connections that's causing these things to happen for an ulterior motive that they have. And they're really just pawns. And that that's Mm -hmm. why, you know, Murtaugh feels so bad is he's like, this kid wasn't really he wasn't Mm -hmm. a mover and a shaker. This kid was just a victim of circumstance. He didn't think there was another, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and it's surprising they don't have some more of that glue to put things together right. yeah. because looking at the writing credits, this is some of the craziest writing credits that I, I think I've seen in the sense that it's one name for the story by and then there's a screenplay credit and it's like single – it's like two names with the ampersand and then the word and and then the same name that's on the first two credits and it's like so – he he gets a story by credit. He wrote enough of the script with one guy and then he rewrote his own script without that guy. I'm like, it really seems like there was an easier way to convey that, but okay. You know, they, they got their guild rules and everything. But because of what obviously went so much into the writing of it then, it's surprising that some of those glue pieces to make it a little bit more cohesive about that point wouldn't have been there. It feels like those got sacrificed because they said, oh, well, we can have a building blowing up. Oh, we can be at a hockey game. And I think it gets a little too derailed by spectacle Mm -hmm. as opposed to focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that because, you know, I think one of the things kind of talking about the the changing times with the villain and Jack Travis, who is this corrupt cop, You know, I I think that's also a thing that, uh, like you were mentioning, there is this hierarchy of people who are doing things for money. They're doing things for power. They're doing things for all of these type of reasons. And in what they're doing, it sucks other people into it um, that have terrible unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, And many of them tend to be people that are younger um and that's uh, you know when when you see who's behind these things and and when you think of like uh the drugs and the guns you know it's like it's a terrible thing i was just watching american gangster uh oh, with what the, a brilliant film yeah you oh. know but but the but to so which does a brilliant job obviously of showing the complete lack of regard that the the people at the top of these organizations have for what they're doing to other people just so that they can make money just so they can attain power and you know jack travis obviously uh, i think does a great job of playing that role and playing that part here I, I, and i think the beauty of that is that it was a massive problem so it, you know it wasn't just about the gangs or anything we we the idea of of corrupt cops being a part of this um, you know, it, there was problems all around. There's corruption on all sides, you know. Uh, it, it, episode three starts as that there are heroes on both sides. Here there are villains on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's where I'm with you, John, where it does feel a little bit like the movie, if it had been able to just refine its focus – and refine the script maybe one or two more times, I think this movie could have raised the bar incredibly 
just by being able to, I think, better pinpoint what's important in the story, what we're trying to say in the story, and be able to connect all of those things better. Um, it's not bad. The problem is, is that it could have been, I think, great, and it just isn't. Well, I think we're definitely hitting a point, too, with Richard Donner as a director where he is he's been a, nothing but a hit maker by this point. He's directed some of my favorite films uh, up to this point in his career. And I, I think that just to sort of like tack on to that, because we're talking about what was on everybody's mind at the time and everything, every piece of entertainment or art is a reflection of, the, of what's coming on at the time. But like a truly great film, and I know Matt might roll his eyes at this, but like 1978's Superman is a product of its time, but there's a certain timelessness that endures for a reason. Lethal Weapon 3, this is the first time I've watched it in a very long time. I always had very fond memory of it. This is Richard Donner as he's entering a very rooted in his time. Like the, the this is a movie where you watch it and you go, oh yeah, okay, this is good for what was out back. Like I see an early 90s action movie here. I don't see a uh, a potentially transcendent piece of art like I would see even just, you know, just that few years earlier with the first Lethal Weapon where I'm like, it doesn't matter that that came out in the 80s. That is just a damn good movie, right? Whereas this, I'm like, hey, this is this is a good early 90s movie. Like I'm already there pinning it to a time as opposed to appreciating it, regar you know, regardless of its context like that. Yeah, I've seen lots of uh, movies and TV shows have the same problem where they make it too topical and then it doesn't end up being a timeless thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it and it is definitely that here as well. Um I think the biggest thing to being the thrown in pieces about the other political popular topics of the time like the sticker mm -hmm. on the locker that said um what was it like fur kills or something like that. Yes. And getting uh rigs to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. Is Don Donner's even been on record as saying if he could have gone back and not had Lois Lane smoking in the first Superman, he wouldn't have. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, but people smoked back then. It's just you can't beat yourself up over right. something like that. Yeah. But there it is an extra step to say, okay, we gotta have Riggs quit smoking. From one perspective, I kind of admire it because it's somebody being aware, well, you know, he's a hero figure. I don't necessarily want a modeling bad behavior for the kids. Mm -hmm. I get that. But this is also a character who, if you watch his string of decisions, just from the very first frame of the movie, you're like, oh, he's not on the force by this point. This is this is really terrible. What he, right. Like they yeah. blow up they blew up a building and everybody's like, hey, next time wait for the bomb squad. I'm like, eh. Yeah. All right. There's a little suspension of disbelief right there. Yes. Oh, he pulled his gun on a guy for jaywalking as a gag. Uh, uh, I I think that's a problem too, uh, but he yeah. doesn't smoke. I'm like, ah, yeah. I don't know. Like we're we're sort of like picking and choosing the battles here. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I mean that's kind of a product of his time, you yeah. know, in using some of those type of things for gags. It's like going back to the beginning of the film, the idea of you know them blowing up a building for the laugh is insane. But so is the pulling the gun on the guy because he jaywalked. That's, that's because he doesn't yeah. want to be a beat cop. Like it's like, are you kidding me? You yeah. know what's actually amazing about that, and I hate this. I hate this about myself that when I watched that scene, my immediate thought was, "Oh man, this definitely occurred before cell phone cameras." Because like, yes, yes. Like today, you're like, "Oh, that's that's viral on TikTok in like three seconds." So it's yes, like, it it, it's yeah. such a weird headspace to be in. But then, you know, just to throw the movie a bone and talk about some of the humor, because Chrissy, you mentioned the locker room scene. They still use Riggs's craziness to great effect. Like when Riggs puts his gun in the holster and it accidentally goes off and you suddenly see Riggs flip out and you have that initial moment of like, wait, what's go? Oh, he's providing cover. He's creating all of this commotion. And I was like, oh, it's just Riggs acting crazy again. 
And I'm like, that's using that character to a great purpose. Mm-hmm. So it's like you don't need that scene where he flips out on the jaywalker. You you use that scene in the locker room and that tells you everything about Riggs. That he's still a little unstable, but he he's self-aware of it to the point where he can use it to his advantage. I think it's just a better scene, better written, better – there's better purpose to it than assaulting a jaywalker sort of moment. Or a film director. Also a questionable <laughs> – Question. Yeah, I, I don't know if Donna was like trying to work out something against himself or the industry in that moment. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you guys uh, about the fact that there were some pretty big story changes that happened in this film. And, and one of the big ones was that the first drafts, the first few drafts of the script, Lorna is not a woman. It's a man as a character. And so one of the big changes of, is, of course, making her a woman uh, and then, you know, having her be the love interest for Riggs. And I I don't – I don't see how this movie works, honestly, without that character uh, being who she is. And allowing, I think, Riggs to finally have that. I think that's what is one of the things that allows the character to move forward a little bit. Uh, especially after the the storyline we did have in the first one. And so, um, I, yeah, I to me that that's uh, I, one of those things where, yeah, I think the story changed to me. I'm glad they did. I, how, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think you have a movie that is very different in its tone and very different in its execution. I mean, I'm a fan of Renee Russo anyway. This is the first movie I can really remember seeing her in. I don't think Free Jack came out first. Um, I think I saw Free Jack because I was like, oh, hey, Renee Russo's in that. She's from Lethal Weapon 3. I'd have to look that up because Free Jack's terrible. But I think that... um, Maybe it did come. Oh, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go down that rabbit hole. I, it I think did that, come out first, but okay, it's fine. it did come out yeah. first. Yeah. Oh, it would have been Anthony Hopkins would have got. Anyway, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, I think that it, you know, I'm trying to find a delicate way to put it, but I think it was important finally in this series to have a a strong female character that wasn't. Just the love interest for Riggs. Um, What I find interesting is immediately you wind up having further um, a glut of characters because you're obliged to bring Leo Getz back. And Mm -hmm. now you add another character to everybody. And it's like, is the crew getting a little too crowded I'll give the movie this much credit that I like the way they use Leo in this. They just embrace the comedy aspect and he's not, his odious origins are absent this time. So you can sort of like live with him. I can live with him a little bit better in this expression of the Leo gets character. But I think that um, that's largely because Rene Russo makes that character work. Um, I think if you miscast this role, everything falls apart. But switching it to a, you know, a, a woman, and then casting it right, I'm on the fence about whether it needed to have a romantic angle to it. But at the same time, it's Mel Gibson; he's a heartthrob at this point, so it feels like there was no way you were going to escape that feel like that was going to happen no matter what so okay fine at least you had a good character have it happen with yeah i i do appreciate what you said for sure john about having a female character that doesn't need to be a love interest for him would be nice but then also it's understandable with the track that his story has taken up to this point deserving to finally find something again um 
And I think that if it had been the original script with a male character that's supposed to be like his match, it wouldn't have worked because if you stick true to Riggs as a character, the only male he really has any respect for is Murtaugh, and he always has an issue with anybody else, at the very least doesn't trust any other man he knows or has met, and then would suddenly have this person coming in. I just don't see him ever bonding with them or trusting them or anything. Um, So that's why I feel like it wouldn't have worked if it wasn't a female and cast well and that Rene Russo makes it work. Um, I think especially having that scene where they're comparing the battle scars. Um, it reminded me of that scene in Jaws. Obviously, that was two guys, but, um, you know, it was yeah. like they were equals. So that at least was redeeming to me of like, she's saying, no, I've been around. I'm not just a desk worker. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I think the the thing that, the reason I asked the question to with the story changes is one of the big things that they decided they didn't want to do that was in the script originally is Riggs and Rianne finally having an affair together, which I don't like that at all. You know, I, the last thing I want is for, you know, Riggs, who's become part of this family uh, to sleep with his daughter like that just is kind of icky um and you know i i don't i i would not have liked that at all i think it again it would have just been ugh and so by changing the the male character to a female character and then making her a love interest for Riggs, but also i think john you rightly pointed out She's an important character for the story and a character in her own right and one who actually can stand up to Riggs as a character as well. Uh, and I think that's what makes her a true standout here. But I think she saves us from um, a really terrible decision that they they almost made where, you know, in the first few scripts, yeah, I just the, – the Rianne idea just like – creeps me out yeah when i saw that i was like oh thank goodness they didn't do that because i mean again it's like their history up to this point they're like brothers he's part of their family so that would be seriously crossing a line that no one even needed to talk about you know as far as the characters go like you would just know that's not okay (laughs) so i'm glad that they end up just joking about it and nothing happens yeah i mean people like to think that uh you know oh well in the past it's like no even even in 92 people would have been like oh well it doesn't really and and to your point chrissy about them being brothers and everything it was kind of cute that she had this sort of like puppy love thing for Riggs and yeah. he, he took his opportunities to just sort of like make Murtaugh, you know, uncomfortable. Like, there, and there was never any intent on Riggs's part to follow through with anything. He was doing it just to just be like, oh, you know, just like make Murtaugh be like, shut up, man. You know, like that's just, that's just giving your friend a hard time going down that road though. Yeah. And well, and I, that's ugh. that's I think a road you can never recover from, and it's no. one of those things where I think you would absolutely everybody would turn on the character of Riggs, you know, because there is that betrayal then between the brothers, and even just the age difference. Exactly, it's a minor hurdle. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Minor. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Get the joke. I like Get the joke. Get the joke. I like that pun. That's a good one. Um, you know, it, no, I, I. I couldn't agree with you guys more. You know, I think we already talked a little bit about um, one of the big changes that we got, too, is that Donner, when he comes in and he's reworking the script, he makes this more a story about Riggs and Murtaugh and their relationship than he does on the story focus. And I think that's clear. We already kind of talked about that, where it felt like you could do both, you know? And I think this is one of those places where, you know... I don't know if it's just where Donner is at this point in his filmmaking career, but 
it it felt like he felt like you needed to sacrifice one for the other. And I think, you know, a good writer finds a way to do both. And, you know, um, so obviously, as you talked about too, John, this this has an interesting writing history. Uh, and I, I think that shows. And so, um, and, and you mentioned too, in, in another thing, he brings back Leo Getz. And, and again, I'm, you know, everybody can sample this. I'm with John on this in the sense that I think he's a much more palpable character in this movie than he was in the second movie, um, where I, he was just so over the top. I think here, it's it's almost like, um, I don't know if you'll crucify me for this, uh, you know, but it's almost like... Uh, People complained about the Leo Getz character in two, uh, the same way people complained about Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace. And so you kind of get less of him in the other films. And I think he works well in those other films. And then, the, you know, the way they work him into the Clone Wars is actually genius. Um, but I, I feel like here they found a way to make the character make more sense for why he's kind of still in their lives and everything and utilize him. Um, but also keep him on the sideline so he's not overtaking the film in the way he kind of does so much of the second movie too. So yeah, I think, I think in that it was a, it was a good move um, to bring him back, but the way they brought him back and the way they utilize him, I think works so much better. You're right. I mean, you're both right. I think they may have even gotten feedback about it and listened to it this time is kind of what it felt like. Although I like the character, I think that you can have too much of him. Um, I definitely think you can have too much of him. I think that something else to sort of keep in mind is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he win an Oscar for Goodfellas between Lethal Weapon 2 and Lethal Weapon 3? So the cost of his screen time would have gone up considerably. Probably, so yeah. his scaled back <laughs> role would have probably made a lot of sense to be like, oh, we can't really afford all of Joe Pesci. Let's afford a little of Joe Pesci. <laughs> that may be it too. Yeah. Although I, I get the feeling like these guys just like working together because obviously they come back and do four finally in, in 98. And he has a major role in that one too. So, I mean, ah, spoilers, I think, you know, I think these guys <laughs> just like working together. So, which, you know, John, we, I think we talked about before on other podcasts, but, uh, you know, Gibson and Glover could not be more opposite, polar opposites when it comes to, you know, thought process, political ideology, all those type of things. And yet they're best friends. Um, and, you know, so it's one of those things where it's like, it seems like this was a cast that got along really well. And just, you know, if if the the phone rang and they're like, yeah, we're doing Lethal Weapon 200, they'd be like, yeah, we're doing it, you know? Well, I mean, until Donner died, they were talking about doing yeah. a fifth one. Yep. And uh, kind of a shame, I guess. Yeah. It would have been interesting to see them come back at it after so many years yeah. later. But um, yeah, although, I mean, heck, I, I honestly, I'd still like four. to see them do it. But, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I haven't seen Lethal Weapon 4 in a long time. And I remember really loving that movie. So I'll just leave it there. But um, I, I, I do want to ask you one thing. Um, why are we back in the bathtub again? Have we not learned that that those scenes are super awkward and nobody should be bothering a man in his bath? Except his wife. Well, this time at least he got a, uh, what was it, a placemat or something laid over him? <laughs> yeah, it's a plus. But I yeah. mean, the thing is, I, I think I've gone on record that baths are disgusting to begin with. So I don't understand why anybody takes them. So I'm the wrong person to ask. It's, it's being in a stew of your own filth. Why would you do it? High pressure, shower wash, like Kramer had in Seinfeld, strong enough to like you know, blast clean an elephant. I want a power washer. I would be in and out in two minutes and I'm done. John has a car wash at home. <laughs> if only, Christy, if only. That would be the you best. You know, uh, my, um, <laughs> my sister-in-law 
their house and uh before they sold that house in in arizona had basically one of those car wash like uh showers you know had the side things yes. and the big rain thing oh and it, it was had just like ridiculous. five different yeah. spigots or yeah, whatever it was amazing so, oh my gosh but um so yeah, the but stop it's just, yeah yeah it's well, just weird and you would have thought too we would learn that the bathroom is just a dangerous place after the toilet bomb exactly you know? <laughs> exactly and never mind the fact like going along with that uh they have a big shootout among porta potties so yeah. in essence i really think that murtaugh I think there's some sort of like ancient curse in his family about <laughs> bodily functions and death. That's like, I think that we should explore this in an expanded universe lethal weapon book <laughs> that like his ancestor had a curse place on him that never shall you be near a toilet that is, that is safe. <laughs> I don't know. I think we got potential. Oh my gosh. That's good. <laughs> so we've talked about the idea that this movie does have so much to do about Riggs and Murtaugh and their relationship. And, you know, I thought, this movie really struck a chord with me this time and watching it because it did seem to be about good men. Um, and, you know, these guys obviously haven't had the smoothest relationship. And yet I feel like this movie is very much about the importance of good male relationships and how important they are for men and what they can mean in their lives. And I thought that that scene on the boat was just, it was so well acted. You know, Murtaugh struggling with the, you know, having to kill somebody his son knew uh, to, to survive. Um, and, you know, the the the, the hard part of, of of all of this about, you know, Murtaugh going to, retire and 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 what that's doing to Riggs because this relationship has brought him back to life you know after the loss of his wife and and basically being in a place where you know as we saw in the first movie he's suicidal he wants to die he has a death wish and these two men have found a way to make make each other better men for all the craziness because of the fact that they love each other you know, and they even say it in this movie, which it just there was something so wonderful about that in this film for me. Um, and and I, I really appreciate that this movie allowed these two characters to be able to say what they were feeling and not make it seem like that can't be something and shouldn't be something that men actually do. Like you're not less manly for sharing your feelings to another dude about the other dude and how important they are to your life. Uh, it just, it really got to me. And, and, and um, I really appreciated Donner adding this in the film. I thought this was maybe Donner's best decision in the movie when, when he decided this movie is going to be more about these guys to make sure that a scene like this plays out because I really think that brings it home. I agree. I think that, What's interesting is in the 90s, the the notions of masculinity were shifting. And I know that sounds like I'm saying it in a loaded way, but I'm not. I If you look at the films of the 1990s, the way that masculine characters were approached shifted. The way it's dealt with here, I think, is – I mean, it's, none of these circumstances are realistic – but it has more of an emotional realism in the way that Murtaugh and Riggs relate to each other about these very heavy things than you will encounter in a lot of 90s movies that attempt to do this thing or attempt to soften their characters and make them a little bit more open about things. I think that this movie owes so much of why it works at all to that underlying real world chemistry that exists between Glover and Gibson and all due credit to Donner, a director who's wise enough to know, get out of the way, they'll make it happen. And this can work very effectively. And yeah, you know, it, it is nice to see a relationship like that reinforce the idea that you know it's okay to talk these things talk about these things that are hurting and, and to admit it and and open up to someone and relate to another 
you know, another person, another, you know, guy to guy sort of thing. But Chrissy, I'd be so curious, like, does that resonate as much? You know, it's, it, it's a buddy cop movie sort of thing. And these are two guys having that emotional thing. Does it resonate as much, you know, from like your perspective? Like, does it, does it cross that barrier and you think men and women can relate to this in the same oh, definitely. way? Okay, yeah. good. Well, I mean, of course, it's going to be a slightly different way just because different genders. But I I look at it as transcending that and that I would say I've been in the same kind of situations where you're getting to know somebody on a deeper level and that me and a female friend finally have that first in-depth bonding moment like that. Um, and I mean, this wasn't their first, but you get what I mean. Um, yeah. And that's something that I really liked about this scene was that just with the writing, but then also especially because of Glover and Gibson's portrayal, they get past the surface layer of the conversation and it's almost like they as characters won't let each other move on to another topic or make a joke out of it and actually yeah. confront each other and say, no, like, let's really talk about this. Mm-hmm. And and even have that moment with Murtaugh crying, I think, drove it home even more of like, like you were saying, Matt, that, that those feelings are not something that especially even guys should be ashamed of showing and that men do cry. Even if, you know, you may not want to brag about it, it it happens. And for a situation like that, it's warranted. And so I I definitely am on the same page with that being such an essential scene and that the director saw the value in letting you sit with that for a minute. Yeah. Well, and and not only do you get to sit with it a minute, but then I think he follows it up in, in a way that feels wonderfully classic you know where they end up punching each other and falling off the boat and then they make the joke to the police about yeah we're just in you know in the middle of a case yeah another case (laughs) of a scotch you know so like it's it it works so well because i do think it feels so real for so many men you know um and again i i think to normalize the fact that you know men do have emotions and that there's nothing wrong with sharing them with one another is great. Uh, and, you know, I think, to you know, you've got what we would consider two very masculine men and Danny Glover and, and Mel Gibson doing that. I think that's great. Um, and I think, you know, more films should do it even today uh, this way. I think it's awesome. So... Well, um, and realizing, too, that that's the power of the whole series is that it comes back to whether or not the two of them work and work well together and mm-hmm. keeping that going. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, too, with the, the final fight, this is another place where uh, they used and utilized something very real. It was an abandoned housing development and there was nothing happening with these unfinished houses, and so they utilized them to the fullest. So all of this stuff is real, and, you know, it's just one of those things where I – it almost felt like, okay, they were like the opening. It's like, okay, where where else can we utilize something that nobody cares about, but then – and but it, we can, you know, have this incredibly real sequence – and it didn't really necessarily matter what the final sequence was. They just wanted somewhere where it could be real. Mm-hmm. And it I, I was like, wow, this is this is great stuff because we're in a real environment. We're we're in a place where it fits with the story too that then they were able to utilize with the bad guy and then we're able to to have this this ridiculous firefight um, in a place we would normally never get to destroy like this. But I was just really impressed in the end. It's a hat tip to the producer or producers. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Like the, the production on this is, was 
able to find these locations and say, hey, listen, you know, hey, and, and whatever faults I might have with the script or the process or anything like that, credit to the script writers for making it work as well as it did. And undoubtedly, hey, I have a draft. Oh, we're going to get this. And it's going to get in a firefight. Great. I found a housing project we can blow up. Rewrite it. All right. Sure. You know, hey, I got this scene. Well, we found a building we can blow up in Orlando. Rewrite it. Okay. We'll take that and we'll move it over here. Like, so, you know, filmmaking is something that has a, a large number of people, but I think that producers get overlooked too much in those terms. We'll talk about directors. We'll talk about actors. We'll talk about music. We'll talk about special effects. But man, the producers who are going out there and making that stuff happen, eh, I, I think in this case, it's a big deal. And uh, so the production crew definitely deserved a, a big, big thank you for finding it because it is a memorable final fight. Like the first thing I actually think of well, there are two things I think of first when I think of this movie. Mel Gibson eating dog biscuits and the final fight. Okay, three things. Rene Russo. So those are the three things I think of when I think of Lethal Weapon 3. And But hey, you know, that. so it's a testament to how memorable it is and the production staff finding it. Boffo job. Well, then I'm going to come in and be the curmudgeon this time. Oh, no. No, Christy, come on. <laughs> the whole world gets turned upside down. Don't do this. Uh, so the only thing I'll say is that with the writing side of it, I still don't fully understand what it has to do with the rest of Jack Travis's mission as an ex-cop who is distributing all of these guns and ammo to also be a... um person constructing a neighborhood is it his cover business yes because it yeah it's, it's just his, not it's super his, clear is all i'll say yeah it's his cover business he's utilizing that so people don't know that um you know he he's he's basically utilizing it to launder the money and the guns um and as a base of operations so yeah to christy's still, point to Christy's point, it's not the clearest that it could be. It's true. I, it's I, very, I, a I little will, flimsy. I I will say that it's the ending itself, the rewriting it to have the final firefight and housing project. The lead up, I agree with you, isn't very clear. The one thing that I actually wind up stumbling on is he grabs a guy for screwing something up who's working on a house and then he drowns him in concrete which is really that's just a brutal way to go that's awful <laughs> but does that mean everybody working construction on that site is also a part of the criminal enterprise because that is the part that seems to me you know that's a bit too much of a, a leap of faith to say so you don't even have any like union electricians there that aren't working with you because there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into building a neighborhood that and wouldn't have seen you and a couple other guys you know well, as accomplices to murder he can't possibly you know like it's yeah the scale of it's pretty nuts um so yeah I, i'll give you that when i when i talk about rewriting i'm talking about rewriting the ending so that they have a an effective set piece at the end yeah not so much the mechanics of how Jack Travis is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as yeah. how the scene works, yeah. I mean, I definitely agree. Full props to the production crew for lining up the time frame to be able mm -hmm. to make the demolition of the building and this neighborhood work with what they needed to do. Because that is a bear just to try and line up to mm -hmm. be on the same time frame. Um, yeah. And it's cool. I mean, like I said, like they're able to take something that was already going to happen anyway and make it work for them and keep their budget a little bit lower. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, 92, this cost uh, like 35 million uh, production, not including marketing to make Batman 
1989 was around 30 million. But by this point, Terminator 2 had crossed the $100 million production mark, uh, it, you know, and it was released in 91. So the fact that you get this much bang for a third of the buck of Terminator 2 is kind of impressive. I know you don't have any groundbreaking visual effects in this, but it is kind of impressive that you have something with this much scale and this much action and all of that stuff and two relatively high-powered stars, I mean, and an Oscar winner and a this and a that for 35 mil, I, you know, that's kind of kind of a bargain, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, but I yeah, agree. I mean, it it was an awesome scene. I think of the bulldozer when I think of this movie. Ah, um, yes. And then uh, just to throw it in there, I forgot about the scene. Um, although I knew that obviously Mel Gibson and Rene Russo end up being each other's love interest. I forgot that in that whole kerfuffle that she uh, grabbed a handful of something. Don't know if you noticed oh. that. Uh, was it? Uh... She definitely grabbed his butt. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I was gonna make well, I was gonna make a, a joke, but yes. Who yes, wasn't grabbing Mel's butt in the nineties? So I'm just well, saying. I hope not everybody was. I hope well, he was comfortable I mean, with it whenever it happened. Maybe Glover uh, did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe Renee Russo was like, no, no, you know, Richard, I, I need another take. You know, yeah, could I exactly yeah, that grabbing... one wasn't as good. We could yeah. do better. She was yeah. grabbing of arguably course. one of the uh I guess you could call it a spotlight butt of Hollywood at the time. Yeah. So, you know, oh, yeah. I guess that's a perk of yeah. the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you guys, we talked a little bit about this with the uh, first two, of course, with, you know, the soundtrack is again uh, done by Michael Kamen as well as Eric Clapton, David Sanborn. Uh, and so I, I wanted to ask you how you guys felt about this soundtrack because, you know, I remember... For number two specifically, we felt like it it felt very over the top and too much. So did you also feel that about this soundtrack or did they find a way to tone it down for you? I will very briefly say that uh, Michael Kamen should be ashamed of basically just ripping off his own diehard soundtrack for this. There are specific cues where I'm like, oh, I know exactly where I heard this music in Die Hard. This isn't even borrowing a transitional cue. This is like entire segments where I'm like, if I closed my eyes and you put this on, I'd be like, I'm listening to the Die Hard soundtrack. Good, mm. Which, trust me, I have committed to memory. And I'm like, no. And I even know exactly what scene is in Die Hard where I'm hearing that. So it's very disappointing. But then to give it a uh you know a positive i love the opening song for the the opening credits and it always vexed me that i like the opening credits version of the song better than the version they wound up releasing on the soundtrack um it has a a catchier uh, not catchier but like it, it has a there's more verve to the beat behind it than there is in the the soundtrack version. So I, I think that uh, It's Probably Me is a great song to kick it off, but then Cayman ripping himself off is a, is a pretty big disappointment later in the film. Well, I didn't know it was that bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I guess I haven't seen Die Hard enough. That's, that's a shame. That's a shame. <laughs> hey, I have seen it. More than once, but not as much Welcome as Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yippee Kaye, that's all I know. Hey. Um, anyway, um, yeah, if for me, the music here is consistent, which I like, and definitely, you know, I think that it's gotten to this point where it's a, a type that you expect for this series, that it's always going to be that slightly melancholy sounding saxophone at different points with them and that that's become like the mo of the Riggs and murtaugh music um i think that overall for me it's just good but not great and not super memorable other than the style being consistent um 
And for me, honestly, the intro, I didn't pay a lot of attention to just because the fire graphics uh, or whatever you want to call it, the fire in the intro made me think, oh, this is like Mission Impossible 2. (laughs) (laughs) Mission Impossible 2. Uh, I don't know. That was the weirdest series. Cool. There's a Mission Impossible and there's a Mission Impossible 3. I don't know about this 2. There was a, yeah. Yeah. There was a 2. I thought it's they skipped thing. 2. There was a 2. I thought that there was hmm. like a numbering problem and they just skipped <laughs> 2 and went right to 3. It's bizarre. But you know what I mean? Like there was this point in the 90s and the early 2000s when it was like the fire was a big thing in movie intros and outros. I don't know well, why. Beavis was working on film productions at the time, apparently. And he was just sitting, fire! So, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, so it was fine, music-wise. But uh, after what John said, I'm like, ooh, that is pretty bad. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I mean, I've seen Die Hard many times, but I did not put that together. Uh, and, you know, I, I felt like the score felt less obtrusive than, you know, what we got, I think, in the second one. Uh, so it was fine. You know, I had no issues with it, but, you know, uh, to to know that he basically pulled uh, a James Horner that is what in that he did. way mm-hmm. um, was uh, was very interesting. And, and in a way that seemed to, to really upset you even more than maybe some of James Horner's work. So, um but. James Horner, I came to expect it. Die Hard is like a sacred score to me. And so to hear like cues one-to-one lifted was just, it felt like a betrayal. I wouldn't have noticed it back in 92. I noticed it this time. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I can't wait to see what y'all are going to rate this movie. And so Chrissy, what do you think? Uh, Lethal Weapon 3, what's your rating? So I still really found a lot of things enjoyable about it. And, um, after thinking over some more, some of the critiques I did have, um, I think that ultimately I end up at a three and a half out of five. Um, just because, you know, like I said, I think that the construction piece of it could have been better tied in story wise. Um, and, you know, like we both all said as well, the, the although it was done well production wise that maybe it was more about the spectacle than it was about the story and you got to make sure that your story story works too um but the focus on Riggs and Murtaugh was great Rene Russo was great and tying in something as big as gang and gun violence to still make it a good story um helped but there were areas that definitely could have been better so I say three and a half out of five I John? uh I, I land with an affectionate three. I think that what really works is what makes any lethal weapon venture work, which is the relationship between Mel Gibson and uh, Danny Glover. Uh, there is a lot of that chemistry here, but the spectacle stuff does go to the point of distraction at certain points where it just doesn't gel the way that it should. Um, and so, you know, as much as I might come back to it at some point in the future and that affectionate three, I think reflects that I had a good time watching it again, but at the same time, I understand why I go back and I watch the first one, but it's been a real long time since I watched the third one. Um, I don't have the hate in my heart for it that I do say with lethal weapon two, I'm obviously a little more forgiving here. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, it, it's an affectionate three. I think I'm going to go with three and a half as well. Um, I think that this movie to me, uh, is, it's definitely better than the second movie, but it's not as good as the first. And, but this is one where I would, you know, absolutely go back and, and rewatch this. Um, and so, you know, it, like I, I would I would watch the first one and then I'd watch the third one. You know, I don't know if I would go, you know, back to the second one very much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like you said, John, too, you know, I think 
with the introduction of Renee Russo in this. Uh, I think it's a, a really good introduction. I think she becomes a character to which I really enjoy watching on screen. And, you know, then the thought process of uh, seeing her again and for and where all that goes is is great because of the introduction she gets here. So, yeah, three and a half for me. But, John, if people wanted to catch up with you, uh, see what you have happening these days, where would they find you? Well, I've got nothing happening. However, you can find me on social media as Kessel Junkie. You should know how to spell that. Come on now, by this point. And uh, actually, for things that I do have happening, you can go over to the Nerd Party Network and you can hear me on two shows. One of them is called House Lights, where we talk about the films of directors. I co-host that with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser. And the other one is a show called Aggressive Negotiations that Matt and I host. It's a Star Wars podcast. Well, I have less going on than you do. <laughs> um so i uh you can find me of course on instagram twitter and letterboxd at bespin bell and then i did have a finished show which i did on the skywalking through neverland network called sabers and spells with my friends amanda and Teresa. so i hope you'll check that out um and what about you matt well, you could find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 Of course, here on the network, in doing literary treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango. You'll also find me on the Nerd Party Network outside of Aggressive Negotiations, which you should be checking out, is Owl Post talking about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you're here. 